Hello and welcome. It's your weekend Managing Madrid podcast for everybody. It's great to have be back. It's great to have you guys back and listening to us. And it's a great derby weekend. Joining me today um, to talk everything, all things Real Madrid versus Atletico Madrid. I've got Kian Sobani. Kian, how's it going, man? Great. I have a lot, lot of yeah. things to say about this game. Um, <laughs> just it's a it's a nice period of of a nice little break of just winning and and a feel good vibe. Happy fans, happy, yeah, exactly. happy podcast hosts, and uh, joining us also to talk about the VAR controversy and how Real Madrid is rigging the league through VAR. <laughs> <laughs> Our friend Om Arvind. Om, how's it going, man? I'm doing good. You know, I have some thoughts about how we should structure this one because Keon, Keon's right. There's a ton to talk about here. Um, and I think we should probably go first half, second half, because if we were to just talk about the game as a whole, just both halves together, it would be me talking for 25 minutes straight and all the tactical things that happen. Yeah. And then it would just be utter confusion. So I think we should probably break it up that way. Cool. Let's I'm, do that. Uh, I'm kind of enjoying my coffee, so if you want to go on a 20-minute monologue, uh, I'm, I'm here for it. <laughs> I, I would listen to that shit also, but um, I don't think people are paying us to just have own rant, or at least I'm sitting here thinking that I, I should at least get my voice in occasionally <laughs> to justify my presence. But yeah, let's do it. Let's do it first half, second half. I think that makes sense. Um, so Atletico starts. Um, I think they're missing one of their key players, um, Rodri, who they have um, begun to rely on more this season and uh, who has become kind of a key asset in the midfield. Um, and he was I think on the bench. He was on the bench, but they, I mean, he wasn't starting. So, Right, right. Um, I thought that that showed, and I think that the, the crucial thing was that um, Thomas Partey um, – I'm going to call him Thomas. I'm going to call the other Thomas Lamar, just FYI. But Thomas had a t- – it seemed like he had a very bad game and sort of was one of the deciding elements of this match against Real Madrid. Partey not showing up was bad for them. And I think, like, this is – some people were kind of, like, surprised because I saw this and and I, I just saw some of the post, post-match post tweets and some of the comments and, like – but like, if you watch Atleti this season, this is just—it's not really anything new. First of all, I don't remember. It's been years since they've actually looked impressive against us, even at the Bernabeu when they just can perpetually draw us. It's—it's never—it's never really anything, in, you know, interesting from them offensively. Um, you're not really that terrified defending them. And this season, like, it's just—it's been a one-man show with Anton Griezmann. Diego Costa obviously injured for a long time. Obviously, hasn't been himself since returning from from Chelsea. I think like Lamar also just like apart from initial season surge hasn't been great. Partey is the one guy who shows up and like will score golazos or just shoot from distance with like a stinging shot. Terrific shooting ability from long range. They they just really haven't had enough outside of Griezmann. And maybe it's a really low bar for Morata now because he wasn't good against Betis, but he was kind of better against Real Madrid Although he, it's just such a low bar that he still didn't do much, and uh, I, I just, I, I was curious to know where their goals would come from, and it turns out like Baran and Ramos pretty much mopped up everything, and I think like the one difference was that at the Burnabout they're much more in their shell. In this game, they opened up a little bit more, they pressed a bit higher, um, they weren't that deep. But then I went when I was looking at the 
the stats, like after the game, I was kind of surprised. I was like, oh my God, we had almost 70% possession. And um, and by the end, by the time we scored the third goal, they just collapsed. So defending on the third goal was abysmal. Right. And, and Jimenez wasn't great. And like... Lucas Hernandez was okay, but I thought Carvajal and Lucas Vasquez like gave him a lot to worry about, so he couldn't venture up the field much. Yep. All in all, like I think this is this was a good, also just a defensive performance overall too. Yeah, and it, it struck me. Well, the reason I started um, with Rodri and, and part, Party right was, I uh, it felt like Atletico wanted to perhaps push forward and be a little bit more aggressive in this match, but the way it all worked out and the way, I mean, Madrid's players kind of responded to that push uh, made it so that Atletico's weaknesses, especially the weaknesses in this particular squad that they were running out, seemed to be on display. Um, I mean, I in my view, Lucas Hernandez is much stronger as a center back, um, for example, than he is as a, as a wing back, but uh, either way, it didn't really actually, um, wasn't really set up for a situation where um, Atletico actually would be able to get back into this or get into this game on an offensive footing. And they, it struck me that they probably should have been willing to sit back a little bit more than they did, at least at the beginning. And then, it's, and, and then when Madrid scored, um, everything seemed to change. So um, I felt like Atletico came out actually looking pretty strong, and Madrid's first goal at I think sixteen was against the run of play. Uh, you know, that I, I would say is an accurate assessment. Before I go into that, um, uh, Keon's um, little um, spiel at the beginning um, monologue monologue, <laughs> Epic monologue. <laughs> remind, reminded me that I think we should before we get into it, like we should just quickly discuss like the overall state of Atletico Madrid. Because I don't know how many Madridistas have paid attention to them. Yeah. Like we just, I mean that's fair, right? Like different team, um, but I, there are concerns. Like Keon was saying, like what we saw from them today wasn't all that surprising. It wasn't like you know, aside from um, Partey's performance, it just kind of felt par for the course for Atletico Madrid. And you know, it, it's kind of it, it kind of feels like that we're post peak now, and we're never going to get back to the peak. Atleti that that we had in maybe 13 14 or 15 16 maybe even 16 17 because it so like here the thing with Atletico Madrid ever since like they won the league is that most teams in La Liga treat them as a big team so they can't do that like same ultra defensive tactics that they did to get to, to basically rise up to the level of Real Madrid and Barcelona and they had to start adapting so every season following the year they won the league, Simeone would try to change to more offensive tactics. It never worked because th- there was always a good idea. And what Atletico Madrid would try to do is they'd, they'd stay in that 4-4-2. They'd have their wingers right. play really rigid in the half spaces. Fullbacks would be out wide. And they'd try to play vertical passes into the wingers, play layoffs, and then cross into the box. But... Because that was the only pattern of play they had, it never lasted, it never worked. So what Simeone always, every season, you can watch this. He, he, he tries to go more offensive, he tries that same pattern of play. Teams figure it out, and so he go, goes back to that defensive style and just says, okay, I'm going to grind out 1-0 wins every time. And that, I mean, it worked. Obviously it worked, right? They, they made another Champions League final. Um, they, 
you know, they they did well in the league relative to basically how any other team can compete against the super teams of the Real and Barca. But it worked because Godin was still in his peak. He had all these great defensive players. Gabi was still there. And now that his defensive talent is declining and he signed more offensive players like Thomas Lamar, he can no longer afford to not have that offense anymore because his defensive players simply aren't that good. And, I mean, he tried it again. I think he recognized it after last season when Oblak saved Atletico time and time again when their defending actually wasn't that good. And this season, he's like, okay, it's got to change. At the beginning of the season, he tries to make that shift again. It doesn't work. So they go back to that defensive style, and it's just it, it, it just looks like a decline now because the, the defending simply isn't that good, and they can't make up for any moment when they concede. I think that was the case yeah. today. I mean, I think one of the key points that, that you're mentioning, one thing that comes to mind is that, uh, especially watching this match, Godin just doesn't seem to have the same level that he did even even a couple of years ago. I mean, he's just he is a, a still a brilliant defender, but it just feels like he isn't all he isn't what the the player that was this fearsome left or the fearsome center back who I think had a strong case to be best center back in the world, especially um, defending and and both defending and attacking on set pieces. It seems like that's basically gone, and he can't execute good defensive like defending on set pieces which is why Madrid's first goal I actually was very surprised because Atleti looked very bad defending that set piece which used to be one of their strengths with Godin especially as the center of that right and well, it's, it's go ahead, go ahead. No, go yeah ahead. I was just going to quickly add that Godin's a huge one right I think I think you basically covered it Gabe describing how he performed in this game but it's also the fact that like Atletico's offense was always about efficiency and it required really like a couple key individuals to carry the offense and they always turn up. So we're talking about Griezmann quite obviously, you know, years prior it was Diego Costa and then it was also Felipe Luis uh, because Atletico really rely on their wingbacks to provide the width and provide the creation. And, you know, people for a long time have underrated Felipe. Luis's ability to go past players and put in quality deliveries and they don't have that from the fullback position anymore you you mentioned Gabe that you like Lucas Hernandez better as a center back and I'm guessing you're saying that because he doesn't provide much offensively from the fullback position he's really quite excellent he's really quite excellent defensively there but he's a center back who's playing out wide which is why he doesn't provide and so I think when you just look at just the way the key personnel he's lost Simeone has simply failed to adapt well, those, I mean, not to make this uh, the Culture Narrow Chat podcast and talk about Atletico <laughs> for an hour, but that the Felipe Luis was a huge one, too, because his ball-carrying ability at his peak was so good and that he could he could get you on a quick counter. Because Atletico, even, like, at their peak, they were a slow counter-attacking team. They were kind of like, they would, it would almost be painstaking, painstaking just to watch them counter-attack because it was so slow. And if Correa or Griezmann aren't, you know, aren't getting help. It's really hard to just watch them, and I don't. And I'd be curious to know how Morata fits overall. Like I, not that I'm worried. I, I I'm completely neutral when it comes to Juve versus Atletico. But like I'd be worried that like, I I don't see a way for them to get past and create chances against a really organized Juventus side who was in tiny slump. But like that, it's just it's just hard for me to see them pass. That yeah. team and Godin like has his moments, and this is the other thing about Atletico we should mention is that 
very rarely have they had their defensive line available this year. And they've still snuck a bunch of narrow wins this year. And I mean, they're third place. And But you can also see when they come against a good team, like Dortmund absolutely blew them away and put four goals past them and exposed them. And Atrap had an, a field day in that Hakimi, game with space. But like, like there were moments with Godin, and maybe this is a good transition. Godin, like there was that one moment where he just knocks Vinicius over in the box, like a really great challenge, and was like, "Who are you, kid?" Like I'm Diego Godin, and then Jimenez starts talking right. trash to Vinicius, and then Vinicius just like without fear comes back at them, burns <laughs> Jimenez, has an outstanding game, and I thought to me, and the biggest sign of kind of like a good sign for me in these past two games apart from the good tactical wrinkles, which we'll talk about, is that twice in, once in the Camp Nou when they conceded and then Messi comes on, the Camp Nou was raucous. And it's like, how do you recover from this mentally? And they had an amazing response to that. They they dominated Barca when Messi came in, which I think we've talked about to some extent through the the tactical video that Om put out, and I wrote about it a little bit. Um, and then in this game, it was like a really hostile atmosphere. Atletico were actually playing well, and neither team was dominating. Like, I didn't think Real Madrid was playing that well. I didn't think Atletico was yeah. in the first half. But they were both kind of just grinding it out, and it was like a very, like, a classical derby where it was just, like, bone-crunching tackles, referee controversy, a lot of heat. And the response from the entire team in that situation, including Vinicius, was good. And I think the response in the last two games to two heated moments in two tough stadiums is a good, has been a good sign to me. Yeah. So I'm ready to go into, like, all the nitty-gritty, like, tactical details of the first half. I don't know if you guys want to get a word in before I go on. No, go for it. I'm, I think it's time. I think that's this is exactly what time it is. Time for tactics. I, I, hear, I hear Logan agrees, so I'm going to go into it. So I agree with Keon. Like, before, if... Before people's eyes glaze over and, you know, they turn off the podcast, just my takeaway agrees with Keon that I, I don't think any either team were particularly bad or particularly good, right? I thought it was fairly even with Real Madrid being slightly the better team. And at the end of the day, what decided it was Real Madrid's clinicality, their ruthlessness in front of goal. And like you guys also mentioned, Atletico started really well. And I think the reason for that was their high press. So a lot of people characterize Atletico Madrid, highly defensive team like we talked about. You know, they just parked the bus. It's That's not completely inaccurate. But against Real Madrid, on what I'd say is most occasions, they come at us with the high press. And it's, it comes out of their 4-4-2, and because it's a 4-4-2 and they lack a man in midfield, it's always wing-oriented. So they're not trying to press the entire field. What they're trying to do is prevent passing access to the center and box Real Madrid on the wing. And this is something that has existed ever since Simeone came in. This pressing system has been consistent. And so what they do, because... Casemiro would drop in between the center backs when we were building from the back. Is Partey would step out of midfield, and just in that moment, he'd create a, a three versus three against our back three with Griezmann and Morata. And then when we pass sideways, Partey would quickly shuttle back into midfield. You know, the far side strikers that would be Morata or Griezmann would come over onto Casemiro, and they try to box us in on the wing. And 
Atletico are really, really good at this. Simeone knows how to drill this extremely well. And so for the first 10 minutes, we could hardly get out of our half. You know, most of the times when Ramos or Varane were trying to pass out the back, Griezmann and Morata would simply knock the ball out for a throw-in. If we tried to pass to Regulon or Carvajal, Correa or Lamar would just be on them and tackle them. If we managed to get the ball into Casemiro, you know, the body positioning of Atletico's players would be such that Casemiro would be forced to pass back into the congested wing. And essentially what got us into Atletico's half around like the 11, 12 minute mark was just Vinicius, right? Like there was this one moment where he let the ball spin through his legs and and, and he just ran around Arias and then we were in Atletico's half and we had a little bit of a spell and then we got that set piece. Like Gabe mentioned, you know, Godin, you know, didn't look so good on that. Ramos wins the ball, Casemiro scores and... I felt that was a little bit against the run of play, but at the same time, within all that territorial dominance Atletico had in the first 10 minutes, they only managed two shots, and both shots were from tight angles. So it wasn't like they had created much from you know their good play. And then after that, it kind of became more even, right? We had that 1-0. That gave us confidence. We started to retain the ball better, but we were also kind of inefficient. Atletico were defending fairly well. We created that one half chance for Lucas Vasquez in transition, and, and then that was it. And then in the 25th minute, Vinicius is dispossessed in a shoulder-to-shoulder challenge. Griezmann scores one versus one. And then after that, I thought the game was pretty dull until until Vinicius won the penalty. And I think we saw the limits to both teams' attacking tactics. So for Atletico, is what I was mentioning, you know, earlier when I was just talking about Atletico as a whole. They're, the way the attack is very structured and it's very direct. So one striker, I mean, you, you can go and watch any Atletico game and it's almost always the same. One striker tries to run off the shoulder. One striker drops somewhat. Obviously, Morata was the one trying to run off the shoulder. Griezmann was the one dropping. The wingers move into the half spaces and the fullbacks keep the width. And so either they're trying to play a long ball over the top to Morata or they're trying to play line-breaking passes into the into the wingers and the half spaces. And Modric and Kroos' defensive positioning was just too good for that. So they had to go wide to their fullbacks. And because Lamar and Correa were so rigid in the half spaces, and you, you we saw this so many times with Arias, he'd have to make like a 15, 20-meter pass into the half space to try to to try to progress play. And that just made it way too easy for Casagro to win the ball back. Like, I saw this on four or five occasions throughout the entire game, and I thought it just killed Atleti's attack. And then on the other hand, you know, we mentioned this before, Solari's offense is one-two combinations and lots of dribbling. And Atletico, you know, when when, when we got into their own half, they, they didn't press, but they just did that same boxing us in on the wing and overloading the flanks so we couldn't get past him. And there were hardly any shots until Vinicius broke away, you know, destroyed him in as one versus one and won the penalty. And then that was halftime. I think you saw, to add to that, I think you saw a nice balance defensively in terms of <clears throat> positioning. And like what I, I, I think like over time, Solari's ha- found a bit of a nice balance between rigidity and fluidity. And um, if you look at the team's shape defensively, I think I'd like to where Casemiro, Kroos, and Modric were. I mean, even Vinicius reading passing lanes on the flank when they were trying to get the ball up to Correa, I think did a really good job too. But um, Casemiro was was really covering well for both fullbacks. I think like you could see him on both sides. You could see him, and he was he was kind of everywhere, but he wasn't. He wasn't all over the place in a bad way. I think the structure defensively was good. I think, like, as a team, 
go score. It was so important scoring not only once but also two goals to to go up because um, the first goal and then eventually when when we scored the second the Ramos penalty and eventually got them to open up a little because their press was suffocating early on and there I remember there were moments where like Modric would look up and he had no idea what to do and he would just look and by the time he kind of could calculate something like mm-hmm. to try to get the ball out of his feet he would be closed down by three players and that was like early on within the first like 10 15 minutes it was really tough and like I think scoring helped unlock it a little bit and by the way we have to mention that like I don't know if Atletico are scarred from La Decima. I'm sure, well, they are. It's not. It's a rhetorical question. But I, you know, <laughs> we know they're perpetually, perpetually scarred from that. But the amount, like the entire defensive line, collapsed on Ramos on that corner, and and he still threw around four players, and we got the ball to an open Casemiro. Just like that was amazing. And I think like Ramos was has been great of late. Like we can't. There's a question later about like um, whether. If Lopetegui had stayed, would we have seen this? I all I know right now is that just like the the form of individual players just did that has happened that we're seeing now just didn't exist like a few months yeah. ago. And Ramos has been a huge part of that contagious energy. I totally agree with that. Um, and we'll get to the questions in a little bit, but um, I, I did want to come back to the goal, um, the first goal. And um, we're going to have to address the controversies a little bit. But in this first goal, there didn't seem to be any um, other than I thought uh, one of the things that I thought was really astounding about this goal was that, first of all, it was such bad defending where, you know, you shouldn't have any Real Madrid player open in the box on a corner kick like that. At that, Like he was right in front of I mean, it was terrible. And then the other thing that I thought was very clear of that goal was that O'Block actually one of the first few times I've ever seen him do this, played it really badly. Um, you see him yeah. rush out when there's actually very little reason. Casemiro's about to execute a very hard kick, like not, not a, a very hard-to-execute kick. It's very possible he's not going to put that on goal. By rushing out, O'Block made it so that even though Casemiro's kind of weak and not, not super effectual shot got past him because he was so close to it. He, if he had stayed in goal, I think eight out of nine times – Eight or nine out of ten times he blocks that shot. So it was very interesting to see, you know, all you need is one set of mistakes and then you have a cascading mistake effect where Casemiro gets the ball, then O'Block rushes him, and then suddenly Madrid is up a goal and uh, the game is kind of open again. Um, then on the second, uh, or the second goal of the match, the Atleti goal, one of the interesting things that we saw, and it's the first VAR um, problem in this match, was the tackle dispossessing Vinicius that led to um, the, the, the ball, you know, led to Atleti winning the ball back in the pass immediately following that to, uh, to Griezmann, who had a one-on-one with Courtois. I mean, it was pretty clearly a foul on Vinicius, and there has been a lot of chatter about what exactly VAR covers and doesn't cover, and like whether a foul in the lead-up play to a goal should be something that's reviewable. And in my view, of course it should be. Um, this, I don't think this is any different, like a foul, a foul to win the ball back than a pass. I think they did. I think they did review it. The, the but I think they reviewed it for offsides, though. 
I mean, I don't know because on the replay in when I was watching the BN feed that like they they showed a couple replays of the mm. shoulder to shoulder and the way Ray and Phil were talking about it, it seemed like they were reviewing that as well. Oh, okay. I don't know when I saw that it seemed like it seemed like it could possibly be a foul, but I don't know. Like to me, it seemed like a really tough shoulder to shoulder challenge. Like I mean, and like Correa was just stronger than Vinicius, but I, I mean, I can also see like. Yeah, it did seem a little bit like a foul, but to me, like, I don't know, like, it it was just shoulder to shoulder, and it, it was tough to tell if it was a push, but I, I feel like I'm going to be in the minority on that one. My, I'm not sure about, I don't know the answer to this, I should have maybe prepared and figured it out before the podcast, but my only, my only explanation that they didn't call that foul was that in real time, they didn't call a foul, like because like if that if that goal doesn't go in, then they just don't care to review it, obviously. But then, in live play, the referee said no foul. So, and then so when they reviewed it, they were like, "Well, why would we go all the way back to that point? We're just reviewing the offside." So maybe they didn't even go back that far. That's my own the only thing I can think of. But I'm just I don't I. I, I mean, can't. there's also the question of like it has to be really clear, like. Um, a clear mistake, clear and obvious error. I mean, obviously that's been violated. We've seen like really difficult decisions be overturned by VAR when it's not clear and obvious at all. But like that could have been another thing they were yeah. taking into consideration. Yeah, I mean, I understand the kind of policy behind maybe you don't want to um, overturn referees' decisions on what are actually close challenges. But I just, I maybe, I maybe I'm I'm wrong, but I just didn't think that was a particularly close one. But I now the fact, the very fact that we're that only you're kind of disagreeing, or at least <laughs> no, I mean the very fact that you say, oh, was, I think it might have just been a, a tough shoulder challenge, means that it probably doesn't rise to the level of error that we would want. Um, it to rise to in order to have VAR. Anyway, so that's the first VAR. And then the second one is on Madrid's second goal. Um, Vinicius is fouled. There's contact that um, I think the foul begins outside the area, but the contact continues well into the area. Uh, and there was a question of whether there was a penalty. Go to VAR, um, and the penalty is awarded to Madrid. I... I I've seen a lot of complaining on Atletico kind of forums about this particular call. Um, did you guys? Did you guys see the official Atletico Madrid right. Twitter account? This is not even the English account. The official yeah, Atletico account. They just posted a bunch of screenshots and said like something like VAR is against us. I can't remember what they said. I think it was, it was just like a thinking emoji, wasn't yeah, it? I, think I it can't was just remember. A thinking emoji. <laughs> That was it's embarrassing, like a, especially like because Simeone. It was embarrassing, especially because Simeone said they like VAR wasn't the reason that we lost. Yeah. But yeah, I think I think to me, so I think there was more of a question on like Atleti's goal. I, I will tell you when I saw the um, the Vinicius foul on the first replay, I thought, okay, it's clear this is outside the box. But we were shown multiple replays and like five or six times it was clear that after Jimenez was beat and he came back, he fouled Vinicius a second time in the box. So I I mean, we're all Real Madrid fans here, so there may be bias, but in my opinion, that was very clear and it was a fair penalty decision. I had a few people on Twitter very mad at me that that was a rule in the FIFA rules. They were, <laughs> they thought I made the rule up. They were like, they, they didn't like the rule. I was Which, like, go, go tweet at FIFA. 
Just the idea that it's if it ends in the box, it's a foul. In the, in the, <laughs> if it's a penalty. <laughs> yeah, that's not up to you, Keon. You don't get to make that rule. But I appreciate the people um, like them who think that we have a lot of power to make. It's a lot. It's a lot like the person. It's a lot like the person who blamed me for Zidane leaving. You know, he said, <laughs> oh, yeah. he said it was me and all the managing Madrid propaganda that made Zidane leave. Dude, and that, that I should be ashamed of myself. That's so cool. It was. I, was I have fault. so much power as a, as a blogger with 7,000 followers on Twitter. You know, just I'm, 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 the, I'm the most important Real Madrid figure in the world, quite clearly. Well, we had someone message the managing Madrid Facebook page inbox during the class okay, at halftime and say, and ask, Asked us to tell Solari to take off the tennis player that is Vinicius. Oh, dude, I love I love people like this. They're so much fun. We've been getting them for such a long time that we and people maybe people don't know this that we actually have to put up an away message that immediately responds to people who write us on Facebook, which it just says something like um, we can't tell uh, Zidane or you know Florentino to start or sell someone. Like <laughs> we get a lot of messages. No, we are not actually managing Madrid. <laughs> and sorry, apologies if we just disappointed you right now and the entire time you thought that we were picking the team and influencing yeah. <laughs> you know, signings and stuff like that. Guys, I got to run. All right, um, Kian. All right. You guys hold it down. Take Enjoy care. Have a game. Talk soon. Kian Bye. is leaving our podcast to go talk about, um, to go watch the Barcelona game. So you... That that show, should show everyone where his real loyalties lie. <laughs> <laughs> and us real fans are probably going to talk about the second half now. That's the plan. Let's do it. All right. Um, so getting into the second half, uh, what strikes me the most about this half, Ohm, is I think that it, it seemed like Atletico came out in a very kind of there was a lot of stoppages in play, I'll say that. And it seemed like if I were Atletico Madrid, I wouldn't want so many stoppages in play when you're down a goal and chasing it a little bit against a team that, that is like Real Madrid and that can, that can score pretty easily from you know, a pr- essentially any position. Like You want to kind of let the game kind of flow and try to control that flow for your advantage. And what they did instead was they came out and got a, just a tremendous number of cards. Yeah, so I, I could be wrong here, but I kind of feel like the fire in Madrid derbies has died down, you know, past couple seasons. Like, it'll flare up in moments, but I kind of feel like since the Zidane era, like, it's just been cleaner because obviously Atletico will always have that chip on their shoulder because, you know, Real Madrid is just better, but... You know they've 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 accomplished things now. They've been in Champions League finals. They've won the league. Um, they they're considered a big team. You know they win right. most of their Champions League knockout ties. So it it kind of feels like that's gone, right? It kind of feels like in the early Mourinho era, we kind of used to do this against Barcelona, and then as we felt like we got back to their level, we didn't really need to do it anymore. But this game was there were there were way more fouls. Like they were. Each foul felt extremely cynical. Like it, yeah. it felt like back to the early Atleti 
Real Madrid games. There were 37 fouls committed in total. And I don't know what the average is per game in La Liga, but I'm pretty sure that's way over. And a high key and, started off this way also with right, the Madrid right. fans throwing stuffed rats at Thibaut Courtois, which is like pretty funny, actually. I think that's pretty good. <laughs> that's a good, good derby thing to do, actually. But uh, it that attitude carried over onto the pitch. And especially in that second half, it just felt like, I don't even know how much this is really helping. Like, I know that the, the fans at the Wanda were really excited to see the you know, Atleti take in a bunch of cynical challenges, but it just did not seem to me like the smart, tactically the smart decision um, as a way to actually win the game, which I would imagine is their actual goal. Right, because, well, I mean, I, I, I don't think Simeone um, in his playbook really has much of a choice, right? I mean... I mean, I'm, it kind of sounds like I'm, I'm shitting on Simeone a lot. Like, I still think he's a brilliant coach. It, it, I mean, it's just, you know, human nature, right? Yeah. I mean, we, we, we expect a certain standard from Simeone now. And, you know, it's just the nature of football to adapt, right? Like, Mourinho is still objectively a very good coach, and his career is great. But, you know, he hasn't adapted over the last few seasons, and so it looks like he's really bad. I don't think it looks like Simeone's really bad because Atletico Madrid are still in third, which is probably where you'd expect them to be. But it's been so long now that we expect him to have more offensive options, and he doesn't. So the only way he can create changes at halftime is to fire his team up, to work on the mental side of the game. And when you get them aggressive, when you get them pumped up, it's going to manifest itself in a lot of fouls, which can end up hurting you a little bit. I mean, I think... I mean, I think it did hurt them a little bit, but I also think they started the second half fairly well because they had that chance where, like, Reggie Lawn gave the ball away. And we can talk about him later because um, I feel like he did some really good things, some not-so-good things, but he coughed up possession really early. I think it was, like, the 49th minute or something. Yeah. Um, Alvaro Morata gets a shot from, the like, the left-hand side of the box. He completely skews it. Couple minutes later, Griezmann gets one from the edge of the box, and then you have that Morata goal disallowed for offside. So, like the first 10, 11 minutes, you know, they shot themselves in the foot with all the fouls they were making, but they also had like they did three create, good. Yeah, yeah they, they did create something. So, I felt like Simeone's, you know, his halftime talk or whatever did work in, in, in a net positive manner. Yeah, and the Alvaro Morata goal is the other big thing that they, um, that, that I'd love to use seem to be upset about it. It's one of the images right. that their official Twitter account I just wanna I just wanna underline that their official Twitter account posted that. But they posted another photo <laughs> at, where they you know of, of Morata seemingly in line. I mean it is it's it's the kind of thing you want your like banter accounts to do is like post images like that so you can fight with people. But like you don't really want your official team account to post shit like this, especially when your coach is like, no, like, VAR is not the problem. We needed to do X, Y, Z things better. And, like, the official team account is like, no, VAR is the problem, um, and it robbed us, and VAR was man of the match, which is, like, the, the sort of Atleti talking point, which is an interesting talking point considering that I thought that VAR, you know, the, the, the referee decisions was typically Spanish, very bad, but they did cut both ways. Like, it really didn't seem like it was all going against Atleti. Just that because Atleti was on the wrong... Because they weren't clinically finishing some of the opportunities that they had, the, the decisions where, you know, VAR and, and the referee came in and, and stopped play actually mattered more. Right, and I think... I think we have to give, like, Simeone some credit for, like... I mean, I really 
don't want to like put class and his name in the same sentence. <laughs> uh, but this is not the first time that he has been gracious in defeat. Um, like when he was asked about, about whether Real Madrid were lucky or not after the Champions League final, he said, "There's you know there's no such thing. If you win, you know you deserve to win." And that was in direct reference to Real Madrid winning. So like while. There are many things about Simeone's character I do not like, even though I admire him very much objectively as a coach. I think at the end of the day, Simeone understands that, like, you know, especially in stuff as marginal like this, it's just the better team that wins. And I think it's even more the case today because, like you said, Atletico Madrid just weren't clinical enough. If you look at the XG, we're marginally better. So, like, right, I think a fairer score, you know, if, if you can use fair in this context, you know, would have probably been something like 2-1. Or, or something right. like that. And we won 3-1 simply because Bale finished a very low percentage shot. But, I mean, that, that's the game, right? Like, we had the right. players. Our players were more clinical on the day, and therefore we deserved to win. And Simeone was able to recognize that. And I would have expected, really, the fans and everyone to take the lead, you know, from their, their top guy when saying this, but it looks it looks like that. Well, it's not, I mean, yeah. And frankly, in this era, there is, there is very, I mean... There's always going to be a group of people who feel like they're going to look up for a way to feel hard done by, and I get it, and I respect it, because it's easier to feel hard done by than to feel like your team just got outclassed on the day. And uh, it did seem like, you know, perhaps a more fair result would have been a one-goal Real Madrid lead or win, and it could easily have been a draw if a couple of things had fallen differently. But, you know, this this was a match where it did feel like Madrid sort of was the better side across the like for the entirety of the match. There were times when Atletico had some, you know, some possession were pushing, but they couldn't turn the that possession into into you know expected goals or goals at all. So, um, and let's talk quickly about Morata though, because I think that's a he is sort of a talking point for uh, that like for this match because you know obviously Real Madrid player going to play for Atleti. Uh, I didn't think he actually like I, I've seen him getting getting um, getting flamed, but I actually didn't think he looked particularly bad. I also I also frankly think that he's been incredibly unlucky over the last few matches with Atleti to first of all not have scored, um, and then to I mean he had a penalty shout later in the match um, brushed aside because he handled the ball. It looked like, um, yeah. But otherwise, it's an interesting question that Keon brings up, which is. How exactly does he fit into this squad? And I actually do kind of see him fitting in okay to what they can do. Um, I mean, to kind of bringing in this uh, more, more you know, sort of traditional forward mentality to an Atletico Madrid side that needs, they just need to be able to create more chances either through the air or, or however form. And, you know, he, he actually didn't look super bad to me. Yeah, I think it was more a question of him looking uninvolved rather yeah. than bad. And I think people t- they, people tend to conflate the two, especially with center forwards, because, you know, I mean, that's just how it goes with them, right? Either they get a lot of touches or they don't, and yeah. sometimes it's not always up to them. And as I mentioned before, with Atleti's predictable style of offense, it was quite easy for Modric and Kroos to block off the passing lanes, yeah. for Casemiro to win the ball whenever the play was was played inside from the wing. And then Keon mentioned Varane and Ramos swept everything up. But whenever he got on the ball, I think I thought he was sharp. Like, that yeah. finish on the offside goal was not easy at all. No. 
and as to as to how he fits into the team, it's a very interesting question. Um, a lot depends on his confidence, obviously. But let, let's assume like it's you know it's normal. Whatever normal confidence is, I'm not sure. But let's <laughs> just assume that's that's what it is. Um, I think he fits in decently well because, like you said, he's more of a traditional center forward. You know, he he was making lots of intelligent runs off the shoulder of defenders, and I'm assuming he's going to get onto a couple of those. And if he has the confidence, he finishes those. What I don't think he's going to provide as much as like say Pete Diego Costa did is the hold up play. Yeah. Alvaro Morata is slightly above average in this aspect, but as we saw with Chelsea. Giroud kept getting minutes over him towards the end simply because Giroud was a lot better at hold up play. And Giroud's actually one of the better forwards in the world, but I think that's something that like they've just never been able to replace when when Costa came because they could just put the ball up to him. He'll hold it up against three or four defenders. Right. You know, Griezmann or someone else will come up the field and then they have a chance. And honestly, I'm not sure how many center forwards in the world can do that. And I think it would be wrong to expect Murata to do that. So I think it's going to be a slight boost. It's another presence. It's someone who knows how to make runs. It's someone who's comfortable swapping, you know, with players on the wings, but he's not going to be that Diego Costa. Presence. Right. Um, so uh, why don't you talk to why don't you um, run down some of the tactical developments that happened in the second half? We'll do that. Then we'll jump into a couple more players to talk about quickly, and then we'll do questions. Right. So the second half, after like the we we talked about the first ten minutes where Atleti had chances, I felt like it kind of went back into that stalemate mode we saw after um, Real Madrid or Atletico scored their first goal before the penalty. Um, and this is where this is kind of where the pressing for both sides went away because it was mainly you know Real Madrid holding on to the ball at this point, and we saw more of Atleti's defense in a, in a medium slash deep block. And I talked about this a little bit in, in when we were talking about the first half about how it was similar to their pressing scheme, and it was similar in in their goal. And whenever Atletico faced Real Madrid, it's always to try to force play towards the wing and box play there. So if if you go back and just look at like sections of the second half when we were possessing the ball in Atleti's half and, and Atleti had time to set up, they would Griezmann and Morata would block off passing lanes to the center. We'd have to go to the fullbacks. And then there would just be this huge shift with 90% of the Atleti defense. So you'd have so let's say Madrid are attacking from the right-hand side. You have Morata go all the way over to pressure the fullback. You have Griezmann coming over to block the passing lane back to Casemiro. You have Saul protecting the passing lane to Modric and also getting close to Vasquez. You have Partey shifting over. And you just have this congestion of Atleti players near the wing that, that, that outnumber us there. And Correa and Arias are the only ones kind of keeping the width to protect against the switch. And because Solari's offense is about one-two combinations, it's about dribbling, I mean, it just—it was just too tight of a situation to work ourselves out of. And I think Solari kind of recognized that, which is why he made the sub for Vinicius for Gareth Bale. And, I mean, I'm not entirely clear if this is correct. I mean, this is just pure speculation. But I think he did it because he, he thought Gareth Bale could provide better defense on the wing because Gareth Bale is just more experienced. He's more intelligent defensive player than Vinicius. Keon mentioned he read the passing lane as well. That's true, but he also tends to lose his man. I mean, he's, he's an 18-year-old. You know, it's a 
expected. Bale's just more focused. He's better defensively. So I think that's why he brought him on. I don't think it was for an offensive boost. And maybe this is just confirmation bias or just hindsight bias because in the 74th minute, Bale makes an interception from a Partey pass. You know, this is again like from the wing in inwards, like one of those difficult passes that they were trying to make. Bale snatches onto it, sparks a counterattack. Benzema gets onto it. Modric plays a through ball and Bale scores, and that's the end of the game, basically. Uh, so I, I think that it's worth now bringing up just some standout performers from the match. I think for me, on the Real Madrid side, I, I so I was on the Culture Hero chat on, on Friday, and I mentioned to them that on the Madrid side, the, the key to the match, and I think the key to every Real Madrid match, basically, is, is whether Luka Modric is performing at 100% his level. And I felt like he had a very solid game today, and that was a very, very important part of uh, of what Madrid was managed to do tactically, which is like you know, when Luka Modric is on, he's both an incredibly creative force who can set up, for example, that bail goal and, you know, just hold possession of the ball, be calming, especially in a, in a hostile environment. But he also brings a huge amount on defense. And it just felt like both of those things were true today for him. So I want to shout out to Luka Modric, who, um, you know, probably not my man of the match, but definitely... Definitely uh, in the discussion. Also, very exciting to watch Vinicius, who uh, I think once again showed that he just is not is not going to be cowed. And I think that by itself, <laughs> right? Like he's just going to run at you, and and you've got to feel like a few times in this match, it seemed like, man, this kid could totally shrink away from this, but he's not. He's just going to keep running at this very high level defensive line, and and he was doing a really good job. I mean, he was. He was hard, hard to pin down, and drawing that penalty was a huge, huge, um, important moment for Madrid. That was that was a game changer. At some point, I have to make a video or something about how Vinicius approaches one versus ones when he has the ball because, you know, he is flashy. He has a lot of technical skill, but at the same time, it's not that flashy when he's running at a player in space. It's not like young CR7 who threw a lot of stepovers, Vinicius is very efficient when he goes at a player. Like, all it is is he accelerates, there's this little hesitation, and he doesn't even wait for a challenge. It's just this little hesitation, and then he's off again. And it's just enough to disbalance the defender because his timing is so perfect that he's just away, and his speed is so good. It, like, he, he utilizes his physical gifts so well, and he... and, and you know, I feel like this will be Vinicius in his peak is just using his technical qualities just as much as he has to and just letting his physical gifts like overwhelm the opponents because and to yeah. me, that's how that's kind of like the perfect balance of like how a player should approach one versus ones. Right. Because essentially at the end of the day, your ability to get past a player, you know, is largely determined by like your speed or acceleration. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to leverage those physical gifts with some kind of trick or some kind of hesitation. And Vinicius does it so incredibly really well. well. I'm really impressed. And I'm, I also think that he he is developing physically to be stronger, like in that type of situation where he was knocked down um, in, in lead up to the Griezmann goal. Uh, you would think that maybe uh, a stronger and a, a more physically developed, um, I mean, he's 18, so he has a lot more muscle to build and a lot more body to fill out, maybe um, doesn't give that ball up. And that's the kind of thing that Vinicius should start. I mean, if there's anything to critique him on, it's that 
he does seem like a type of guy who, who can get bodied if you need to mm-hmm. body him off the ball. And his decision making was also not great this game. I mean, we I mean we're we're probably gonna be saying this a lot because he is eighteen, but there were moments where it cost like I felt like up so we could argue about whether that was a foul or not. You know, I'm I, I'm sympathetic to people who think it was because I do think it was a hard challenge even though it was shoulder to shoulder. But Vinicius had a bad touch that led up to that. And then there was also this earlier moment when we were being pressed where he thought it was a good idea to do this like trick pass to Regilon in like Regulon was swarmed by like three players and either we lost the ball or it was out for a throw in it. It's just these moments where like, like, no, I mean, I don't think that was a good idea, but I'll forgive you because not only are you so young, you're the literal catalyst for our offense. So I, I mean, it's just something we have to live with. It is something that will probably go away, but it's also a negative at the moment. Um, <clears throat> another really standout performance for me, Regulon. I, I mean, what did we even say about this kid? Yes, there were some uh, – he made some bad decisions occasionally, but really he was just – I thought it was a statement match from him. And I know that Lucas um, Navarrete did also um, – you could read his article, but statement match from Reguilon, just fantastic, I thought, uh, on the day from the youngster. So I thought defensively I, – I think he's quite mature – and I think that's why Solari is picking him over Marcelo because when Marcelo's not on form, it can be quite bad defensively. And, and Reguilon, you know, he, he's not going to provide nearly as much on offense, but he, he still makes those runs. He provides a presence, and at the same time, he's intelligent. He positions himself in, in the correct areas, and he's not a liability one versus one. But so there was all of that, and I think all of that was very impressive. But up against the press, I thought he was probably our worst player. Um, besides Pertois, like who, I mean, who's just not good with the ball at his feet. But like, there's a higher expectation for fullbacks, right, to play out from the back. I there were just too many times where I saw him making mistakes in that game. I mean, he had the worst passing accuracy of any outfield player on the side besides Vinicius. And Vinicius, we talked about his decision making. Regulon was 77 percent. Ramos was 94. Ron was 84. Carvajal was 83. And actually, was that entire left hand side? I didn't think. Kroos had a particularly good game, so Regulon made up for all of that with his defensive work. Yeah. Kroos was okay. Kroos was okay defensively, but Kroos had an 84% passing accuracy, which is by his standards very low. I thought he made a lot of. I mean, his passes were just poor, and so I think just that entire left-hand side kind of let Real Madrid down a little bit on the press resistance end, and. You know, I, I, it was kind of notable with Regulon because it, the ball was on his side a lot and he was having to make a lot of tough passes and he just wasn't able to pull them off a lot of the times. But, you know, that's yeah. not, I mean, th- that's kind of nitpicking, right? Because overall, it, it was good and he's there because he, he's superior defensively than Marcelo at the moment. And I, I thought I thought it was a pretty good idea to start him and he did well overall. I agree. Um, Casemiro also... Very strong game from him. It does feel like yeah. whenever he has a real challenge for his spot, he steps it up. He's like Carvajal in that in that respect. Mm-hmm. He just needs someone there pushing him, and then who can spell him occasionally because he also does eventually get tired. Right. Casemiro was him. very good. Casemiro. So I was talking about right. Like, you know, this is like the fifth time I'm mentioning this. Um, like when Atletico are making those passes from like those diagonal passes from the fullback into the half space to the winger, like those are already difficult situations to like, like to execute in, but like a great 
great defensive player is able to spot these weak points and capitalize. So you could just see, like, especially from the right-hand side when Arias was trying to pass into Correa, you can just see Casemiro a couple yards away on the blind side just waiting for the pass to come in. And just as Correa is turning, Casemiro will be onto him. That's just, that's kind of textbook defensive work. But at the same time, it's also just like, this is very intelligent, you know, you know, clean defensive work that we don't appreciate a lot. And I thought Casemiro was just able to pick on the weak points of Atletico's attack and just break it down really well. Um, All right. Those are, that's basically all the notes I have for me. I'm happy to go into questions unless you have anything else that we didn't touch. Great goal from Bale, by the way. Absolutely clinical. Yeah, Bale, really happy for him. He really needs that. Um, I thought Benzema was a classically good game for him. You know, he was, without him, I don't know if we would have really ever gotten into Atleti's half. There are a couple moments from Vinicius, but Benzema, Benzema, like while Vinicius does it single-handedly, Benzema helps to like lifts the whole team. So another classically good game for him, and I hope that form can continue. But otherwise, other than that, I'm ready to go into questions. Yeah. Uh, all right. So just a reminder, um, we are changing our patron rates, but still, uh, we'll, you're going to have access to all of our content. Drop us $5 a month. It's not that much money. <laughs> if you want access to all of our patron-only content, there's a fair amount of it, too. We have various podcasts throughout the week, um, and we have other patron content. Um, and if you toss us $10 a week uh, or a month, God, I keep saying week, but $10 a month, uh, you can ask us a question on every one of our shows. We'll answer it for you. Um, that is uh, every show every week for $10 a month you could ask a question. That is um, a good deal. I'll say so myself. <laughs> and then up from there, we have another great, um, other great uh, levels of rewards, including um, we're going to do more drawings for signed shirts or tickets or these various things. Um, and if you get in now at, I think, $15, then if we have, say, a drawing of a signed shirt at the $20, $25 level, you'll get in if you get in 15 And then if you want to, um, you know, toss in a little bit more money than that, even Keon will write you an article of your choice. So that's up to um, $75. So pretty good deal, I think. Um, so first things first, um, our friend uh, Brendan Powers says he's going to be in Bilbao in April. So he says, I'll be in Bilbao in April. I have a friend who works there at the university, so he knows the city, but isn't that into football? Um, Has anyone been there? I'll be present at the Rayo game. I've watched games on TV, and the stadium seems electric most game nights. Anything I should see or do at the game or in Bilbao generally? Um, Great question, man. Uh, So if anyone's in Bilbao listening to us or going to be in the north of Spain, Hit up Brendan and go go to a match together. That seems that rules. Um, I will also say, Brendan, you are in so a place with some of the best food in the entire world. So enjoy your restaurants. <laughs> um, I might go to. I might try taking a day trip to San Sebastián just because it's not very far away and um, it is some of the best restaurants in the world right there. So, uh, Michael Neil, Michael Nielsen asked us, um, "Hey guys, long time backer, first time questioning. Yes, thank you. Um, thanks for the awesome work you put into the site and podcast. It really is my main non-Spanish source for news and thoughts around reality these days. Hey, thank you, appreciate that. Um, we do put in a lot of work. Unsure if these questions have been discussed before, so I'm just um, um, so I'm gonna jump in. 
One, do you think Lopetegui would have recovered and eventually achieved the same apparent level of harmony if he hadn't been fired? I feel that I have the feeling he would have kept playing the out of form Marcelo, Isco, and Bale over and over based on name alone, rather than letting the in form youngsters forward. So Vinicius Jr. might not even have gotten the chance to break through like he has now. So after all, getting rid of him was probably the best choice for the club, even if it came. Some called it too soon. What are your thoughts on this? So. Other than the point that that was brought up, you know, and why maybe it was better to sack him, which must be said is kind of a big point, I do think that the team would have recovered. Because if you're just looking at some things like Modric, you know, which is huge, like really huge, like Modric coming back, just transformed. Yeah, I'm saying coming back because he because he really. I mean, he wasn't there. Like I, I, I couldn't even see him on the pitch when he was there. Like, totally and that that was just time. Like, there's nothing that could be done. We just had to wait and wait and wait. And at the beginning of the season, Keon and I said, and I think you also said, Gabe, that it's probably going to come in January. We have to yeah. wait that long. And it pretty much happened exactly like that because that's just how it is. And Benzema. You know, Benzema, it seems like he just decides to play well when he wants. Like, other than, like, the first couple games, he was he was bad. He was bad under Lopetegui. He was bad, you know, under Solari for a bit. And then he decided, okay, I'm going to become the best center forward in the world right now. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, well, that's, that's great, man. And now we're really good. <laughs> so those, I think, are two of the most important players for our midfield and attack. Yeah. Um, and... Also hitting rock bottom just like meant I think the team got a message after we lost versus Sociedad that said if we if we don't pick our shit up now and we find a way to win and, and give 150%, that's it. Our season is over. And we kind of saw this last season as well. So there's just a feeling that there was going to be an upward trend. Yep. So I do think that if we kept Lopetegui, we... The, the player performances would have improved. Having said that, I, I think it's a legitimate question to ask whether Lopetegui would have played Vinicius because I think Solari's biggest yeah. positive is not really tactical other than the high press, which I think he's done very well. I think it's that he's rotated. He's played Odriozola a lot. He's given Regulon chances and he's played Vinicius. I mean, it's questionable because Vinicius only really got into the side as a starter when Bale got injured. But there was a clear willingness like in Copa games and stuff. So I don't know. I, I think that is a legitimate question and a legitimate pro in Solari's favor. But overall, I think Real Madrid would have recovered regardless. I agree. I agree. And I also would say that I, I think the main thing, you know, the main point in Solari's favor is this Vinicius stuff. And that is not a small point that the Vinicius has exploded in a way that none of us thought he would, and Solari is the only one who gave him that shot. Now, he, he gave him that shot with, despite other potential options on the bench, and he's been critiqued for that. For example, Isco probably could play at least sometimes in that position, and he's just not played at all. And I think if Lopetegui had stuck around, even if Bale had gotten injured, we might not have seen Vinicius because Lopetegui would have probably experimented with more with where Isco would play and, and probably, you know, ro- you know, probably found more time for Asensio. I know he got injured also, but I, I, I think that, and I will say also though, it's not fair to say that um, before Lopetegui, or before uh, Solari, the youngsters weren't getting any time because they were, right? Uh, Odriozola and uh, Ceballos especially, but Isco. I mean, like, these kids were, and Llorente, they were getting time for Real Madrid. It's, it's well, just you're that, right. Uh, and also, they 
part of the problem also was that um, all the all those other starters were all healthy. So it's harder to, and we'll see what happens, you know, when now that people, the team is starting to get back together and be entirely healthy, whether some of this stuff keeps up. But I, you know, I, I think that there they were very different situations, but I, I do think that it is a strong positive in, in, in Solari's favor that Vinicius has exploded. So I, I don't want to linger on this too long, but this is a very interesting discussion. Um, so I think I think A's right. Like Lopetegui was the one who gave Ceballos a chance. I he didn't give Llorente the chance though. Mm. Like he hardly played him. Like that was like so. I think Llorente and Regilon, along with like Vinicius, I think those are his big three. You are right. He gave Odri- Lopetegui gave Odriozola chances. He gave Ceballos chances, but also like you mentioned, all the players were fit. Then Solari in his tenure underwent like a huge injury crisis. Yeah, and he had to play the kids. And there's also the question of the fact that like Solari simply didn't have the same level of pressure. I think when Solari came in, even when it was as bad as it was after the Sociedad yeah. match, where all of us were just like, "Oh my god!" None of us thought he was going to be sacked because who else would? Yeah, who going, else was coming? Who else in? Going to sack? Exactly. But Lopetegui had that constant pressure over him that like, if I literally don't win the next game, I could be gone, and that is always going to factor in to yeah. not playing guys because you just want the more experienced hands so it is a very difficult question i do not think it is clear cut overall i think we would have seen the same resurgence but i think really the biggest question lies over vinicius's head and i think it's a legitimate one yep exactly um the second question he has is uh, regarding asensio what explanations can be given for his really mediocre performances all season there's the recent injury of course but is he uh, played in a role that he that doesn't fit him? Lack of confidence, form, or what? The reason I ask is that he has either regressed quite a bit and and majorly been out of form for six plus months, or he is just isn't the huge talent we thought. Not saying he isn't still a big talent, but maybe not as huge as we had um, hyped to be. I don't think that's what it is. Actually, I'll just say I, I think that anytime you have a world class talent who's so young and and so bright, unless they're like Mbappe and which is who is a literal world beating, you know, generational-type player, they're going to go through ups and downs. Even Azard went through ups and downs uh, at, like, 25, right? He had a bad season with Chelsea, and that doesn't mean he's not good, right? So I, I – and I also think, Ohm, and, and I don't think we can just brush past the injury issues. Like, he actually has had a number of serious injuries this season. Right. For the majority of the Solari tenure, he has been injured. Um, so – and he didn't play great under Lopetegui, but it, 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 when analyzing individual player performances this season, you just also have to think about the fact that, like, no one has been consistently good. Yeah. And is this the environment where you think individual players can succeed? And I'm just not that clear that it, it has been yeah. that environment consistently. So I think it's really up for debate. Essentially, I had so much faith in Essentially going into the season. He didn't live up to it for sure, but I don't think it's over by any stretch. And there's still a lot of time to see how his future unfolds. He also, he also went through his first world, real World Cup um, in the offseason where he was a consistent starter um, and played very serious minutes. Uh, and that is a, a different type of offseason for people. And and for a young kid who has never really dealt with basically playing incredibly, overwhelmingly high-pressure minutes all summer, I think that's a different thing, too. Yeah, and so apologies for going back to question one, because I said so much. I just really felt like I needed to mention this. 
it's worth mentioning that Marcelo and Isco weren't really playing that poorly under Lopetegui. They were probably his best performers, especially Marcelo. Marcelo, just world-beating. Right. And then under Solari in, like, his, like, the first half, like, Sociedad and before, it just collapsed. And, like, Marcelo's form fell off a cliff and he got injured. So we have to also, like, think about how maybe some of the players' form wouldn't be the same. But I'm going back to that question when we're on question two. I just feel like I need to say that. Uh. Brendan Powers asked us about Azard. He says, do you guys think that Azard will be at the club next year? And if so, who do you think they sell? Especially because when Perez brings in a big-name player, he usually sells one or two. Bale for Ozil, Di Maria for Hamas. So who, do you, so who would he sell? Isco, Bale? I'd assume Isco if Solari stays as coach. Or they, sh- they don't go get Azard um, because of Vinicius. Um, because why add another guy to the mix? Um, yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Uh, it will depend a little bit on on the coach for next season, and you know, despite the fact that we're all high on on the way the team is performing, I think it's it remains unlikely that Solario will be coach next season. Um, though we have a question about what the scenario that leads to that later. Um, so okay, so this is interesting because I'm honestly not sure. Um, whether I know, I know Hazard wants to leave. Like it, it's clear. I, I think for a brief period he was like, okay, let's see how this goes at Chelsea. And if you didn't watch the Manchester City Chelsea game today, Chelsea got destroyed six nil. Um, Hazard a couple of weeks ago basically said, I want to go. It's clear he's fed up, and he is. I mean, if you think about it, he is towards the end of his peak, and he probably wants to go and win a Champions League trophy which is why he joined Chelsea in the first place ironically um but so that it's not a question from Hazard's side it's really a question of whether Real Madrid wants him or not and I'm not I'm not sure that we do for two reasons one he's going to be 29 next January and I mentioned that was the end of his peak like I wasn't joking or anything like probably has one more year two more years max at the peak of his powers and then the, the inevitable decline begins. Um, and he will probably be, if not 200 million, 150 million or something like that for a player who's not going to be in his peak for long. So Real Madrid is probably going to think about that. And like like you said, Brendan, we have, we have Vinicius, we have Isco on the wings. So I, I think the club will be hesitant. You know, I, I don't think it's a done deal, but... You know, let's say Isco leaves because Solari is still the coach. Then maybe the club thinks, okay, Bale. Bale is also nearing the end of his peak. Maybe we sell Bale, and then that creates space for Hazard. That's a possibility. But I think it's fifty-fifty at the moment because I don't think there's a real, true incentive for Real Madrid to go out and get Hazard, especially when we have this guy Vinicius. Even though there's a lot of fans that think he's a necessity for some reason. I don't think Azar is a necessity, personally. Um, there are a lot of other players that I think Madrid could target who would bring a different look to the team. Um, Sheikh Hathiri asks us, another good game. Uh, he says, I think if we continue the current course, win the Copa, get to the Champions League semifinals, and end the league on a high note, keeping Solari should be a no-brainer. Um, we should also bring Guti to coach Castilla to be a standby when we need a new manager. So, 
that is the scenario that a number of people have, I think, brought up, which is like, what happens if Real Madrid beat Barcelona um, to get to the Copa final, that win the Copa, um, finish second in the league by three points, and make it to the Champions League final, then lose to, say, Juventus? I mean, I, it, that is the resume of a coach that you want to that you would theoretically want to give a little bit more time to, I think. But the question is right now, I think, at Madrid, it, you can't look... I mean, you have to look both s- s- short-term and long-term. And I just don't think that Solari is the long-term coach at Madrid. I just don't see it. I don't, I don't see him as a project guy. I see him as um, really shepherding a kind of rebound in luck and an uptick in form from some of the players with a couple of important positive notes, but not being a type of coach that I want to base a project around. Just not having the either tactical or player development instincts that that I would want. And maybe, oh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe all this has been proving this thought wrong about Solari, but I just, I still, even in these good games at Madrid, where Madrid plays, I still don't see a strong tactical approach and... and you know, I just don't want to base the a project around Solari. So, I mean, I'm just going to speak in more broad terms because I think I've discussed, like, specific tactics in games, like, a lot in yeah, articles, yeah, yeah. podcasts. If you want my opinions, like, you can just go see. I, I, I mean, and also, like, you know, I, I agree with you to an extent, Gabe. I, I think, I mean, I... It's fun to discuss, and really, I might be just cheating here, but I also think there's really no way you can answer this question. And I, I understand, like, the the feelings of Madrid fans. Like, this is the first time in a very long time in what has already been a very long season that we felt good about the team. But it's also been eight games. And I'm, I'm, I'm a sample-sized guy. You know, it was really bad, you know, for Solari, you know, for, for the start, and now it's quite good. But do we really have the sample size to answer this question until the end? I think it's simply a case of let's see how he does. Because right now there's no there's no question we're on, on the crest. You know, we're, this is a purple patch. Probably not going to last forever. What happens when it normalizes and, you know, Benzema stops playing like the best center forward on earth right. and more like one of the best, which is probably where like he, his level is. Um, you know, th- I'm not saying then that it all collapses again. What I'm saying is I think we have to wait till that happens and then evaluate after we have, like, let's say 30 games under Solari's belt, and then we look at that and then we see. I, I just think it's way too early because all we have at the moment is we have that collapse and now we have the rise out of that collapse. And for me, that's simply not enough to say at this moment whether Solari should be the guy or not. At the end of the season, if, like, Shea says we win the Copa, get the Champions League semifinal. You know, we do really well in the league. So say something like four or five points off Barcelona at the top of the table. And the process has been solid. I think there's a decent shot for Solari. But then you also have to ask yourself the question, how good is good? Because right. let's say there's a potential to get Pochettino. Do you think that Solari being solid or competent or even very good will be better than what Pochettino can possibly provide us. I think I think it's pretty straightforward that Pochettino is simply a better coach. 
I don't know if this is a controversial opinion. I don't think it should be, but that is also something you have to consider, right? Like, so, so even if Solari does really well, you know, beats all the expectations, which currently he is beating the expectations that was set upon him, will it be better than someone like Pochettino? Right. And then it's a question of like, is that change for the sake of change, blah, blah, blah. But I think it's, it's, it's a pretty complex situation and question at the yeah. moment. And even at the end of the season, we have to evaluate everything. There's a lot of things to talk about. Yeah. Um, Vinod Barachula asks us, um, I think Atletico Madrid didn't come out of their Betis defeat yet. No creativity or thinking from them um, at home. We won the match and it was good performance and finish from the boys. But what was that celebration from Bale? <laughs> um, also, somebody from Stans, the Sands um, said something to Benzema, which he didn't get. I don't, um, yeah, that Bale celebration was hilarious. It was a classic um, Gorto de Mangas. It was a big old middle finger. And if you don't know what that oh, is, yeah. <laughs> um, it's, the, the, it's a classic celebration when, you're very, when you hate the crowd you're playing against. I um, love that. I love that celebration so just, much. Tell them to go it's, fuck themselves. It's so much more aggressive than like a middle finger because like, like, yeah. like it's almost like you're punching the air. And I remember when we beat Athletic Bilbao to win the league in 2011-12, yeah. you know, Ronaldo and Mourinho both did it because like Athletic Bilbao's like players were like, we got into a fight at the end. And it's just yeah. like, I don't know, I love that celebration. I have good memories from that celebration. It, it irritates the fans. Um, and, you know, irritating Atletico Madrid fans is obviously going to be good from my perspective. Yeah. That Benzema thing was interesting because I noticed that as well, but I have no idea what was said. All I remember is when the game ended, you know, Benzema came to, like, get in his coat or whatever. He just gave this puzzled look towards the crowd, asked someone what happened near to him, and then walked off. And it was just <laughs> a funny moment for five seconds. I have no idea what happened, but Benzema just looked so confused. Like, you know, <laughs> That's hilarious. All right. I agree with all that. Um, yeah, I mean, the, my favorite thing that happened with respect to that celebration was one of the kind of bigger Spanish anti-Madrid pundit accounts was like, how are they not getting VAR out to review whether Bale should get a direct red card for his celebration? <laughs> <laughs> you know, man, I don't think VAR reviews celebrations. <laughs> so that that was a very big positive in my view. Um Kevin Redmond says, Thanos, um, awesome win, guys. They're coming into form, couldn't be at a better time, um, and are finally looking like world champions. I think the true reason for this amazing stretch has to be Benzema. Ben's got the cast, Benzema's finger, Ben's got the cast and immediately turned into Thanos, and the rest of the team followed. I'm convinced Benzema could walk into a hospital with the cast and instantly cure cancer. Um... <laughs> he would keep should he keep his finger rebroken? <laughs> so so, upcoming big matches. I he was playing really great before the finger, man. No, I think it was the finger and then that sparked it. But well no, he was playing okay, he was playing okay, but then like the best in the world for him came after the broken finger. Yeah. Um I'm convinced that this is not just a coincidence. I think this is causation right here. And I think <laughs> the real test of whether Solari should stay or not, if he has a tactical acumen, is when that finger heals. Solari just straight up takes a hammer and breaks Benzema's other finger. And then we continue that wave in form. And if Solari doesn't do that, that means he's out and we should go get Pochettino. Yep. Leon Savarnakis says, um, cannot give Solari and the players enough credit. The team was a complete mess. He had the guts to play a new combination and make regulars of Vinicius and Reg Regilona. Yeah, fair enough. Um, 
Mimo, uh, Joye says, um, this is a long question, um, and we're gonna have to, uh, we're gonna have to cut it down a little bit, my man, just FYI. Thank you for the nice words about my grandfather. Um, he says, his game was great, and even though I was stuck doing client work, I still managed to watch the whole thing. Um, my man of the match was Benzema. Uh, he is so, so amazing when he goes into alpha mode. Vinicius was amazing, too. Um, he made some mistakes, but he didn't let that affect him. He held his head up and got the penalty. Overall, his development is scary. Um, but I'm not going to lie, I never understood why, why Lucas Vazquez was a starter. But over, the mass, but over the past two months, I fully understand why he starts. He's an amazing team player, um, an overall good guy. Happy um, that they had faith in him, and because of that, his confidence in play has improved. Modric, Kroos, Casemiro all played well. Um, so, um, and then he thinks that Regulon had a good game and should play more. Varane and Ramos um, uh, were good, but that Ramos played Griezmann on side um, and almost played Morata on side for his chip goal. Um, Carvajal is playing really well. Um, and uh, he's worried about having too many people at the right back, which I think is a worthwhile point, um, but it's a good problem to have. Um, overall, good game. Um, not like Madrid were super dominant, but they were doing everything well, and we played great as a team. Yes, I agree. That question of right back is a serious one, though, with um, Ashraf looking so good in, um, in Dortmund. Uh, so, it yeah, it is a very interesting question. Um, we we technically have another year to figure that out because it's a two-year loan to Dortmund. Um, and, okay, here's the thing, right? Because Ashraf's, like, ever since the first couple of months, he's actually been playing at left back. And I wonder, like, he, if, if he's coming back, he's probably going to play left back, right? Because as much as I love Reggie Lawn, at the very present moment, Ashraf is simply performing at a higher level at that position than Regulon is. But Dortmund has some very specific dynamics that like works for that inverted fullback position on the left. You know, Ashraf doesn't he has more freedom to come inside, doesn't always have to provide that traditional width because he's playing as a left back being a natural right footer. I don't know if those same dynamics will exist when he comes to Real Madrid and whether that him playing at left back will work the same way. So, like, those are things to think about. And if that's the case, then he has to play at right back. And then, I mean, there's just not enough minutes to go around. So, Real Madrid, if we don't want to bring him back immediately, which we might because he's playing so well, but if we don't, we have a year to think about that. We have to really look at Regulon's situation. And then we also have to look at the coach and see, first of all, whether his tactics will incorporate Ashraf playing there, and then ask you know, him whether he can adapt to make that happen. Um, it's, I don't think it'll be as seamless as fans think it will be, but it's definitely possible. We just have to think about it carefully. Uh, last question from Essa Hariri. He has, says, Hey, folks, uh, I was thinking about Azard's eminent signing and got me wondering, is this Flo and Real Madrid's new strategy for signing big names, where they wait till the player's contract is almost expiring and they get him for $100 million or less because their clubs don't want um, to let them go for free or miss on the chance of selling them? I expect they'll do that with Kane and Mbappe and maybe with Neymar. Um, I do think, I will say this, I do think that they are going to leverage the end of contracts more. Um, to get players, uh, I think that is the way to beat or at least 
um, keep up in this market of insane amounts of money. If you don't want to pay the Mbappe numbers, right? If you don't want to pay two hundred million for someone, you have to target players who are towards the end of their contract, um, and then you have to be willing to walk away uh, from those players if um, the team is being unreasonable and just say, look player, if you want to play for us, we'll come get you next year when you're for free and you'll sign a contract with us. No big deal. Um, or target players with release clauses, either way. Um, but, yeah, I, I do actually think that there is something to this. I think. I mean, I think we've previewed that a little bit on this show. We've been saying for a while that this is kind of the new tactic people are going to have to go at. Right. I mean, I, I think it's more opportunistic. I don't think it's, like, something that when you say new strategy, I think it implies that, like, Real Madrid are wedded to this idea. No, I don't think no. that's the case. I think I think there's like a flexibility there um, because I, I think Real Madrid were willing to pay 200 mil for Hazard last season. I don't know at the end of the day whether Real Madrid said no or Hazard said no, but I do Something know that. Something happened, yeah. Yeah, and I do know that Hazard said, okay, I'm willing to give it a shot at Chelsea. I'll stop talking about Real Madrid. Now, obviously he hasn't lived up to that because he has started talking about Real Madrid again, but <laughs> I think he he also didn't expect Chelsea to be in the situation that they are now. So, you know, it's I, I'm generally comfortable with, you know, Real Madrid's, you know, transfer strategy. I know that's controversial. Like the uh, video Keon and I made about like why they didn't sign a striker was, was rather unpopular to say the least. Um, you know, it's it's obviously not perfect. I don't think we handled the Hamas situation well, but in general, I think we we've been fairly shrewd. And if this is something we are doing, which you know Gabe says we are, and, and I believe you because you know you have you have a good mind about this kind of thing, then it's quite smart. And I don't see why we shouldn't be doing it. Um, all right. Well, that is your show. We had a nice long one today, and so nice to be back. Um, if you know, uh, Om, do you have any um, anything to plug before we we sign off? So for School of Real Madrid, um, we've got a Luis Figo video that's going nice. to come up, you know, sometime soon, um, and just I guess look out for that probably like Monday, Tuesday, or something like that. That's that rules, Luis Figo. Very underrated, actually, in the kind of pantheon of Madrid greats. I loved watching him and he was really incredible when he was um when it was his time um all right until uh until this week we have tons more coming out loan tracker obviously castilla and then we'll be back for our patron only pod um in the middle of the week um when we will imagine be talking champions league because madrid is playing champions league this week which is crazy um all right talk to everyone then until then a la madrid, a la madrid. Trapped inside the ghetto and I ain't proud to admit it Institutional lies, I keep running back for a visit Hold up Get it back I said I'm trapped inside the ghetto and I ain't proud to admit it Institutional lies, I can still kill me a nigga, so what? Uh... If I was the president, I'd my Take the chains off me. She likes to be like 
about some chocolate Quid pro quo, something for something, that's the obvious Oh shit, flow so sick, don't you swallow it Biting my style, your salmonella poison positive I can just alleviate the rap industry politics Milk the game up, never lactose intolerant The last remainder a real shit, you know the obvious Me, scholarship though, streets put me through colleges Be all you can be, true, but the problem is A dream, only a dream, if work, don't follow it Remind me of the homies that used to know me, now follow this I tell you my hypothesis, I'm probably just way too loyal K-Dizzle will do it for you, my niggas think I'm a god Truthfully, all love them spoil you, usually you're never charged But something came over you once I took you to them fucking BET Awards You looking at artists like the harvests So many rollies around you and you want all of them Somebody told me you thinking about snatching jury I should have listened what my grandmama said to me Shit don't change until you get up and wash your ass nigga Shit don't change until you get up and wash your ass Watch on the TV and be okay But see I'm on the clock with that watch landing in LA Remember still from the rich and giving it back to the poor Well that's me at these awards I guess my grandmama was warning the boy She said Shit don't change until you get up and wash your ass nigga Shit don't change until you get up and wash your ass Hollywood's nervous. Fuck you, good night. Thank you much for your service.